Uh, as we begin this morning, I want to start for just a second in Luke chapter 24. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But in Luke chapter 24, there's this passage that takes place on the day of the resurrection that afternoon. And it's on the road to Emmaus. And it says there's two men walking along and we're, not, we're told one of the guy's names is Cleopas and his friend. And they are walking along on this road to Emmaus. It's about a seven mile road and they're leaving from Jerusalem and they're walking and they're talking about all the things that have just taken place. Talking about Jesus and what he's done and who they thought he was and then his crucifixion and then the story that his tomb is empty. And I love this story because Jesus comes up alongside these two guys, but they don't recognize him. It says he, he kind of hides who he is to them. And he comes up alongside of them and he starts to talk with them. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they say, are you the only person that doesn't know what just happened? And he says, well, what do you mean? And they said, this Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah who was going to come and redeem Israel. And we were so excited. And then the Romans crucified him. But now we've heard three days later that his tomb is empty and we don't know what to make of all this. And so Jesus just listens and he walks along with them and they says the text says that they look sad and they're trying to process this and all these things. And as Jesus listens to him, it says all of a sudden he says to them, oh, foolish ones, slow to heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And then it says in verse 27 of Luke chapter 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. And so here he is walking along the road with them. And he says, let me explain to you about how all of human history, how the whole of the Bible was pointing to Jesus. And they don't know it's Jesus. And they walk along and he's telling them probably the, uh, the greatest Bible study ever. As Jesus unfolds the story of God's redemption for these two men and they get to where they're going and it looks as if he's going to go further. And they say, no, 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 stay with us. Stay and come and eat with us. And it says that he goes and he sits down with them and they begin to break bread and then he shows them his glory and they see who he is. And they go, (gasps) and then he disappears and he's gone. And it says, did not our hearts burn inside of us when he was explaining the scriptures to us and how all of it points to Jesus? And I I love that passage of thinking about Jesus just graciously walking alongside of them and unfolding how all of the Bible, all of human history, all of the Old Testament was pointing ahead to what he would come and do. And so as we begin this week, this this uh, season of Advent for the next four weeks, as we come up to Christmas Eve, we're just going to go back and we're going to spend time in a few select passages in the Old Testament and looking at how those point us ahead to what Jesus would ultimately come and do. When we talk about Advent, it just means arrival. Jesus is coming, his first coming, his arrival. And so as we think about all these promises throughout all of history, from the very beginning, what God was doing, my hope is it will help uh, stir up that anticipation of celebrating Christmas as Jesus comes. And so we're going to go back to the very beginning today. Luke just read from us from Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 12. And so we're going to go right back to the very beginning. In Genesis 3, as you just heard it, it's a very famous passage. Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation of the world. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are now in the garden and they're enjoying uh, one another. And here they are and they walk with God in the cool of the day, it tells us. But then they sin. They rebel against God. They do the one thing that God tells them not to do, which we could really summarize as just being that God says, I want you to trust me with all things. Don't eat of that tree. And the temptation comes. 
As Satan, the serpent, comes and begins to tempt them. And he says, you can do that. You don't need God. You can do that on your own. And so they decide to do so. And sin enters the world right there at the beginning. We have creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And we have the fall in Genesis 3 as they rebel against God. But what I want us to highlight today is, is Genesis 3.15. And then what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12.1-4. As we see right there from the very beginning that God has a plan to redeem his salvation. His, great creation that the fall doesn't catch God off guard that he is knows this and he's prepared for this and how he begins to point them ahead to what he's going to do that will ultimately find his fulfillment in Jesus and so right there at the beginning of the Bible we see this picture of what God's doing and how he's doing it and so the next four weeks the way I think about this Genesis three fifteen and Genesis 12 that we're going to look at today, and then we'll go uh, into Samuel next week, and then we'll go further into Isaiah, and we'll start to look at these different things. It's kind of like when you go uh, to the eye doctor. You ever gone to the eye doctor where they put that thing in front of your face? It's a big deal. It's got all the lenses in it, and they put it in front of you, and it's just completely blurry, and they say one or two, which looks better? And you say one, and they flip the things, and then suddenly it gets a little clear. And they say one or two, and you go "Uh, two, and then they flip them again, and it gets clear. That's kind of the way it works throughout the Old Testament. God makes these statements and these promises and they're kind of vague and they're a little shadowy and we don't see the fullness of it. But then as the next one comes and the next one comes and the next one comes, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer until finally it's this picture that Jesus is the one that has always been the plan of God. And so I want us to think that way through Advent as we're looking at these great promises of God and how they point us more and more clearly to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And this has always been God's plan. From the very beginning. And so with that said, I want us to look at those two passages today. Real simple outline kind of where we're going. The first thing I want us to see is that God is mission. He is, an, he is mission and he's on mission to restore his creation. And that's always been his plan that he is going to redeem his good creation after this fall. After we have rebelled against him. Then secondly, I want us to think about how does he fulfill this mission? And thirdly, what does it mean for us? So God is mission on mission to restore his creation. How does he do that? How do we see him doing that in these passages? And then thirdly, what does that mean for us? And so let's start right here at the beginning, Genesis 3 and then Genesis 12. Uh, One of the first questions I think maybe that comes to mind as we just read that passage in Genesis 3. Maybe you've thought about this, maybe you haven't. If you read through that story and Adam and Eve are there and everything is good and there's this tree in the garden, there's this kind of temptation out there. Why does God do that? You ever thought about that? Why does he allow that to be there? Why is that even part of the plan? It's a good question to consider. I think it's a pretty big one. Uh, Part of the answer we'd say is that God creates us to have uh, real choices with real consequences. He allows us to be these kind of free agents that we can make these choices. We're made in his image and after his likeness. And we we have the choice to love him and to love others and to be part of that. And so part of the answer is that there's a possibility for evil in the fact that he gives us choices. But then the question in my mind, maybe you thought about this, maybe you haven't, is that why uh, as God does that and he 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 sets that before he knows what we're going to do before we do it. Does he not? I'm going to show you from the Bible that he does, because the Bible actually tells us he knew before the foundation of the world what would happen. So why does he do it like that? 
If he knew we were going to make that choice and he knew that that was going to happen and he sets that in front of us, then why? And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And I think part of it, at least in part, is that God knew that when he does creation and then our rebellion and the fall, that in his redemption, he's going to redeem his good creation. And having done so, it's going to be better for having gone through all that. And it was always a plan to redeem his creation. And always from the very beginning. We see it right there in Genesis 3. He has this promise. But I want you to go back even further than that. Now we're going ahead in the Bible. But in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians written by Paul in the New Testament. He's talking about the purposes of God and what God does. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen, even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved and in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purposes. He set forth in Christ as a plan from the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's quite a sentence. But do you hear what Paul says? Before the foundations of the world, he already knew he was going to redeem us in Jesus. And so when he created us and he gave us real choices with real consequences, he knew what we would choose. And he said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to redeem them in Jesus. And so I want you to think about that in light of Genesis 3, this very first promise. If you look at Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, sin enters the world, they realize they're naked, they hide themselves from God. You see all this unfolding, but then it says God came and sought them out. He went to seek them out first. Where are you? And he comes to them and he tells them the reality is what, of what has happened in their sin. Things are now going to be harder. Things are going to be difficult. Relationships are going to be harder. Childbearing is going to be harder. Work is going to be harder. All because you didn't trust me in this. But then right in the middle of that, he turns to the serpent, to Satan, evil embodied right there. And he says in verse 14 of chapter three of Genesis, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, your belly, you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And right there in Genesis three, we have the proto evangel, the first gospel. Through your seed, Eve, one is going to come who's going to crush the serpent. And right there in their moment of sin and as all of it comes flooding in and they see the reality of what happens, there stands God saying, I am going to redeem my good creation. This is all about Jesus. And he is the one that's going to come. And he says it right there at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. 
And so God is at work to redeem his creation. He's not reacting in the moment. He knows exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and how it's going to find its ends in Jesus. And you see that right there in Genesis 3, but it's like the first lens. It's still really foggy. Through your seed, Eve, is one going to come and it's going to crush the serpent. You're kind of like, what? If you open your Bible and you've never read it before and you read that, you don't really even know who the serpent is or exactly what's going on or how that works until much later. And so it's very kind of foggy at the beginning. But then when we turn over to Genesis chapter 12, and so I'll fill you in. Genesis 3, you have this promise. They leave the garden. They have children. They're a mess. One kills the other. We have sin throughout the face of the earth. We have Noah. We have the Tower of Babel. We see sin multiplying and the, the, all of this. But then we get to Genesis 12 and God calls this guy out. This guy, Abram, that will change his name to Abraham. And he gives him this wonderful promise. He says to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that... You will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, you shall be blessed. And so what I want you to see here. God starts this plan that he promised to Eve through your seed. I'm going to crush the serpent. And then he calls this guy Abraham out and he says, through your seed, I'm going to bless the entire world. Same promise. And now it's starting to take effect. So lens number two now. And it starts to become a little clear. It's going to be a descendant of Abraham, descendant of Eve. Abraham is a descendant of Eve. And now Abraham is going to go forth and God's going to do this thing. And here's the thing I want us to see. When we look at Ephesians 1 and we look at Genesis 3 and we look at Genesis 12, that God is the God of mission. He is on mission to redeem his good creation. There was a German missiological missiological list. That's not the right way to say it. Missiologist. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> means studies missions. He's a theologian. His name is Carl Hartenstein. And Hartenstein came up with this phrase. He called it the, uh, um, I'm losing my, the Missio Day. I always want to switch it with the Mago Day. Missio Day, that God is the sending God. That he is the God of mission. And what he meant was, and I think he's properly saying when we look at the Bible, that the Missio Day, God is the God of mission. He is the sending God and he is the initiator of mission. And what Hartenstein was saying is that we as the church didn't make up mission. Missions wasn't our idea. It's God's idea. He is the sending God that is on mission to redeem all of his creation. And you see that when you read in Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the earth that he was going to call people to himself in Jesus. And in Genesis 3, when he goes and he seeks out Adam and Eve. And he tells them that I'm going to crush the serpent through your seed. Or in Genesis 12, when he calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. God is on mission to redeem his good creation. It's not something that we invented, but it originates with God. And so we say here all the time. Our mission as a church is to make disciples who make disciples, to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit, that we want to glorify God, that is to show what God is like in all things. Well, this is what God is like. God is on mission to redeem his good creation. 
This is who God is. Mission originates with God. He is the one, the sending God that is going out to redeem his creation, to bring us back into the relationship that we were made for. And so sometimes uh, we say uh, our website, if you read uh, the, the stuff that talks about our doctrine statement, what we believe as a church, we say we are a gospel center, reformed, missional church. And we say missional, that we are sent to be on mission. We as people that gather together, the church is you. Remember, church is people, not this building. You're the church. And as the church, we are sent on mission. We say that because it's important. But when I really stop and think about it, it should be redundant. We shouldn't have to say we're missional as the church. Right? That as this relationship with God and we come to faith in Jesus and the Spirit is now dwelling in us, and the Spirit is at work in the world to, to redeem His good creation, to bring it back into the fullness of what we are created for. God is on mission. And for us to be dwelling, Him dwelling in us and uniting us to the Father through what Jesus has done, we are on mission. We, the church. And so the idea of saying we're a missional church is a little redundant, should be a given. I was thinking about it like this, like uh, think um, young guy, high school guy decides he wants to go and play football. And he goes to the, the high school football coach and he's a great big guy and he's strong and he's fast. And the coach has seen him in the weight room and he's seen him run. And the kid says, I want to play football. The coach is like, yes. Right. Big, strong, fast. We need all this. And the kid's like, I'm excited. I want to play for you, coach. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I'm going to run through walls for you. But one thing the coach says, yeah, what is it? Uh, I don't do contact. I don't block and I don't tackle. I don't hit anybody. But other than that, I'm yours. I'm in. Right? We laugh because we go, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. You can't be a football player and say, I don't do contact. Right? It's a contact sport. Every single play is full of contact. Pretty much everybody's getting hit all the time. And the truth is for the church and, and what God has called us to, we should never, ever be able to say, well, I, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus and I, I, I've confessed my sins and he saved me, but I don't do that mission thing. What? That's just as absurd as saying I'm a football player, but I don't do contact. It's absolutely integral to who God is. And what he is about and what he's doing. And so God is mission. He's the missio day that is the sending God that is sending us on mission to all things in all ways to redeem his good creation. And we see that right at the very beginning. See it in eternity past in Ephesians one. And we see it in Genesis three, right as the first sin enters. And we see it as God calls Abraham. And so the first thing is God is mission. But then I want you to think about how he's doing that. How do we see him fulfilling his mission when we start to read in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and then on through the entirety of the Bible? And what we see is he calls people to himself and then he sends them out. That's what you see with Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land I will show you. Right? If you've ever heard that passage preached, he doesn't tell him where he's going yet. Just get up and go and I'll show you where to go. And he does. 
And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so he calls him to go out, sends him out to go and meet people where they are. And that's what God does. He calls us into a relationship with him and he blesses us and he does this incredible work in our life. And then he turns and he sends us out to go and to do the same. And this is the way we see God working over and over, not just with Abraham, but all the way through the Bible. Abraham and Moses and Jeremiah and David and the prophets and all of them. God says, I'm calling you now. Go. Proclaim who I am. And what I'm doing, go to the place that I will show you. And so he does this with Abraham. And when we stop and think about that, does God need us to do this? No. He can do this without us. He doesn't have to use us, but he chooses to use us. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to to the purpose of His will. But then listen to what it says in Ephesians 1. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. He calls us into this and He uses us to be part. And as I was thinking about that that week and I was thinking about that question, uh, thinking about that this week and thinking about that question of why does God let it go like this and sin enters, right? Creation, fall and rebellion and all the mess that goes with it and then redemption. And I believe because it's going to be better when he redeems it. Having gone through seeing all of this and then being brought into redemption and seeing the new regeneration of all things, it's going to be better. And then it makes me think, well, why does God work the way he does that he calls people and then sends them out to go do it? He is so gracious that he allows us to be part of the great things he's going to do. He doesn't have to use us. He says, I'm going to call you into this and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to go out and to do this. And you get to be part of what I'm doing. And it's God's wonderful grace. You see that all the way through. He pursues us even in our rebellion. He comes after us and he saves us and he brings us in. And then he says, and now I'm going to use you to be part of this. This rebellious people, this sinful, broken people. And he says, no, 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 I want to work through you. And this is what God does. And if you look at verse two, it says, as he speaks to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He calls us out and he gives us direction and he blesses us so that we can bless others. We see this all the way through the Bible. God blesses us to be a blessing. To go and to share that with other people. And so I, I want to be clear about a couple of things here. But one in particular, when we start to say God blesses us to be a blessing and he works this way, he doesn't save the world through us. Right? He, he calls Abraham out and he says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing and then I'm going to bless the world through your seed. We could summarize it this way. The Old Testament is God calling these people out to point ahead to what he's going to do in Jesus because Jesus is the one that's going to save us. And likewise, we could say the New Testament is people that have come to know the risen Christ and what he's done and he's called us into his family and he's adopted us as sons and daughters and then he says, now you're going to go point to what I've done in Jesus. And so the Old Testament, they're pointing ahead to look what God's going to do and now here we stand in light of what he's done and we're pointing to what he's finished. 
And it's all about pointing to who Jesus is. So we're blessed to be a blessing to point others to who Jesus is and what he's like. But I want you to think about what that looks like to be blessed, to be a blessing. That God is on mission to redeem all and he calls us in to be part of that, to show what God is like. So when we talk about discipleship, we talk about growing in our relationship with God. We want to glorify him in all things. Glorify just means reflecting back what God is like. And so when we see that all that we have and all that we are has been given to us because God has blessed us to then show what he is like, we turn and we seek to bless others. I was talking to my brother. Uh, he was here last week and we were talking about uh, a gentleman that's in his church in Houston. Jeremiah is a pastor in Houston. And he's telling me about this guy that he's gotten to be friends with that is now part of their church family. And he said, this guy's been really, really successful in business. He started this company in Texas years back, and it's just taken off. And he said, the guy is a multimillionaire now. And he said, he's making lots and lots of money, and his company is growing and growing. And Jeremiah said, we were having lunch one day. And he said, I feel like God has blessed me to be a businessman and how to make money and how to do this. And so I'm just going to continue to make as much money as I can. Jeremiah's kind of like, okay. And then he said, and the reason I want to do this is I want to be able to give more and more away and bless more and more people. God's given me this gift so that I can bless others. And Jeremiah said, that's great. And then he said, so I have this thing that I'm doing with my company. I don't know how many, I can't remember how many people he has working for him, but it's like 30 or 40 employees at this time anyway. And what he had done is everybody that works for him has salary and benefits and all these things, and they're paid well for what they do. But every single employee in his company has a stipend of $3,000. And that $3,000 is every single person gets it. And it's to be used to bless people that are in need. And so he set up his company this way. He says, like, if your neighbor's car breaks down and they're struggling to make the payment and you want to help them, you go fix their car and bring me the receipt and we'll pay for it. And he said, I want to teach my people, I want to teach my employees that it's better to bless others. That it's a great gift for us, that God has blessed us with so much. And he said, not all the people that work for me are believers and they don't understand all this, but it's a great opportunity for me to sow that into them. I go, what an awesome idea. To see that everything that we have and everything that we are is God's and we should use it as stewards to bless others. And we see God working this way all the way through Scripture. He calls people out to bless them. And as he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. I'm going to do this great work in you so that you can be a blessing and show what I'm like. And so Abraham goes and he does. But if you look closely at verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. But then look at what it says at the end. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or if you flip over to Genesis 15, and you don't have to go there, but God again says it to Abraham. I'm going to bless you through your offspring. And again, another one of the lenses as it becomes a little clear. I'm going to bless the world through you. And then I'm going to bless you through your offspring. And you're going to have a child. And he's 100 years old. And God keeps telling him these things. And we get to the New Testament. And we get to Galatians chapter 3 and Paul says it like this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. 
And so Paul alerts us in Genesis 3. He says that promise that God made to Abraham was always pointing to Jesus. God was always on mission to bring redemption to his creation. And so when he says to Eve, through your seed, it's going to crush the serpent's head. And then when he says to Abraham, through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. He's talking about Jesus. Which Ephesians 1 tells us was God's plan before the foundation of the world to bring sons and daughters to redemption in him. And so what that says is that God is a God of mission who is on work to bring redemption to his creation. And so when we come to Christmas, come to Advent, and we remember the coming of Jesus, we cannot overstate it. It is the central event in the history of the world. It was always pointing to what Jesus would do. Always. That God is going to redeem for himself a people. And so when we start to think about what that looks like and how we should see in light of that, how we should live in light of that, you know, when we see Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. And so a couple of things I want you to consider as we end this morning. The first thing, if you're here today and you're unsure about Jesus and who he is and what he's done, who God is and the way he's working, you're weighing the claims of who Jesus is. Please hear this. The deepest heart's desire that you have is to know and to be loved by God. And when God makes those promises to Eve in the garden, when he makes that promise to Abraham, he's talking about bringing people back to himself. And so if you're here today and you're wrestling with that, God is at work to bring you back to a relationship that is the greatest need of your life. And He loves you. And from eternity past, He's been pursuing people for His purposes to redeem them and bring them back into His family. And whether you realize it or not, that is the deepest desire of your heart. And God wants to have that relationship with you. He's redeeming His good creation. And it's always been the plan. If you're here today and you say, I know that and I'm a believer and I've put my faith in Jesus and I love him and I'm thankful that he does this and that God is this way. Let me just remind you that if you've put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. The God of the universe, this missio day that is on mission to redeem all of his creation now dwells within you. He is with you at all times and always, uniting you to the Father through what the Son has done, and He is at work. And so what that means is you are sent, and you are sent with the power that is going to redeem all of creation. He is at work within you, as He's working to redeem His good creation. This is a beautiful and wonderful thing. The originator of the mission is now with you at all times. And so we are called to get out and to go and to bless others and to speak the truth of who God is and what he's doing. And so I want you to think about this as we come to this season, as we come into the Christmas season and people get real excited about it, which is wonderful. They talk about peace and joy and love and all these things. And every time that somebody says Christmas, they are saying the name of Jesus, of the Christ, 
whether they realize it or they know it or not, they're saying it. And it's right there. And so we have opportunity to give voice to the things that they're wrestling with. The things that they're longing for, whether they realize it or not. To speak the truth boldly in love, to invite people in during this time. And so two things I want you to consider. How are we as a body going to bless others? God has richly blessed us. And that means in word, but also in deed. One of the things we did this year, and I don't think we've done a great job of communicating it, and I will own that, and so please forgive me for that. But we set aside money for our missional communities to give to you to bless other people. And so there's a few hundred dollars sitting there for every single one of our missional communities. And so I just want to charge you with this this morning. Who as a group do you see that we would like to bless this holiday season? Who do we know that's in need or struggling or has that we could help, that we could come along and be a tangible witness to who God is and what he's like and how we bless them? And so would you leave here today praying and thinking together and, and, and wrestling with what that looks like and how we could do that? And as you see those needs, would you come and tell us? And we'd love as a church to come alongside and give that money towards whatever it is you're seeing. We trust that the sending God that is on mission to redeem all his creation is working in and through you. And you see those things and God alerts you to those. And so we want to come alongside you. We want to bless people where they are. We want to be a blessed. We have been blessed to be a blessing. But then secondly, who would you invite in this year? The next month. Every year at Christmas Eve. Every year. We come and we gather and stand up here and I look around and there's all these people that I don't know. Some of them I've just never seen before. And they come and they come on Christmas Eve. That's like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Come on Christmas and Easter and they come and they're here. And so I would just ask you to begin to pray. Who is it that God has put right in front of you? That maybe you would invite in. That they would hear the gospel proclaimed. That they would begin to experience what it looks like to be part of a family of faith. God is on mission to redeem all of his creation. And he's placed you right in front of people in your life that are seeking and asking questions and they don't know the answers. And he's blessed you to be a blessing. God chooses to work through his people. And I'm convinced that what he's going to do in his great redemption and regeneration is going to be so wonderful that we want to be fully invested in being part of that. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that it's a plan that started long ago. That you always knew that you were going to redeem us in Jesus. And we thank you that you were willing to do so, that you loved us this much. I pray that as we come up to Christmas this year, that we would see afresh the glory of the fullness of your plan and what you're doing, that you would help us to see it anew that we would be so excited to go out and seek to bless others in the ways that you've blessed us, to point them to you and what you've done for us. I pray that you would bring many people into this place over the next month that are seeking, that are asking questions, that you would give us opportunities as your, your family, your adopted sons and daughters, to love them and point them to you. And it would all be for your honor and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.